Hi, everybody. Welcome to Ancient Heroes. I'm Patrick Garvey, and today's guest really needs no introduction, but I'm going to give it a shot anyways. I'm here with Douglas Preston, who is a journalist and author of 38 books, fiction and nonfiction, 31 of which have been New York Times bestsellers. He is the co-author with Lincoln Child of the popular Pendergast series of thrillers, which heavily feature archaeology and ancient mysteries. Many listeners will recognize his number one bestseller from 2017, The Lost City of the Monkey God. He has also worked as an editor uh, at the American Museum of Natural History and taught nonfiction writing at Princeton University. And today we are talking with Douglas about his brand new book, The Lost Tomb and Other Real Life Stories of Bones, Burials and Murder. It's great to see you, Douglas, and I hope you're doing well. Well, thank you, Patrick. It's good to be on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and how this project came together? I was looking at it yesterday, prepping for the interview some, and I just went down multiple rabbit holes. I was reading it for hours on end. My wife was getting mad at me. It just is an awesome uh, uh, journey into a lot of different stories. So how did this all come together and who who had the idea for this kind of book? Well, it's uh, 13 absolutely true stories. Uh, I, for some reason... Um, I guess a psychiatrist might be able to explain it, but I'm attracted to really bizarre, uh, unusual, strange, um, and sometimes quite gruesome and violent mysteries, especially mysteries that have never been solved. And so as a journalist, uh, like with the Lost City of the Monkey God, I've spent years traveling the world, collecting these stories and writing them up. And as I looked at at them, I realized, well, there are some uh, some commonalities here. Uh, again, I, I leave it to a psychiatrist to explain, but, but these are pretty, uh, some of these stories are pretty awful. That's all I can say. When, when you were a kid, I mean, did you, were you always interested in history and investigating mysteries and stuff like that? I mean, I'm, I'm really interested, before we jump into some of the specific stories, I'm really interested in your background and what led you into this kind of career and in, in life? Well, you know, I think I've never quite grown up. I think that may be part of the problem here. Um, when I was a kid, I was absolutely fascinated with with mystery stories, you know, uh, thrillers. You know, I read all the H. Ryder Haggard books. I read, you know, all the Hardy Boy books when I was a little kid. And I dreamed of of finding ancient Egyptian tombs and treasure and, and dinosaurs and all that stuff. And uh, I never quite grew up. So when I became a journalist, you know, at a certain point, you think, oh, all the mysteries of the world have been solved, but not true. And when I became a journalist, I realized there are all kinds of fascinating mysteries that have never been solved or that have been solved, but are still quite fascinating. So like, for example, the Oak Island treasure or a new discovery of a tomb in Egypt, or, or like with the lost city of the monkey god. Who could believe that in the 21st century you could actually find a lost city somewhere on the surface of the earth that was completely unknown to science? But these things are still coming to light. And I think that's one of the things that's so entertaining about the book, is that it, you know, it's buried treasure, it's pirates, it's lost tombs, it's the second I started actually reading it, I was like, "Uh oh, okay, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be in this for a while." Um, 
going down this rabbit hole. Uh, you mentioned the Oak Island mystery, and that was one that um, last night after I read the chapter, I was now I'm on Wikipedia going through all of this and looking into all these things that I hadn't heard about before. So this is a you describe it better than I would, but basically it's a, it's a shaft or some kind of sinkhole off the, uh, in an island off the coast of Nova Scotia where they've um, been theories about buried treasure for hundreds of years. Uh, what was it like looking into that particular mystery? Uh, that's, that's really one of the greatest buried treasure mysteries uh, in all the annals of buried treasure, and it's not been solved. So it remains a mystery. Well, I heard this story originally from my mother, who was really into mysteries and treasure and all this. And when I grew up, I looked back into it, and I realized, my God, this, this is really a real mystery. This isn't just something that's made up. So I, I flew to Oak Island, Nova Scotia, uh, and I, I got in thick with the, with the treasure hunters, I spent two weeks on the island with them, searching for the treasure, interviewing them, uh, looking at photographs uh, that they had taken. Um, and it, God, what a story this is. I mean, you know, it, it starts 200 years ago where uh, a boy and his friends rode to this island off the coast of Nova Scotia where there'd been rumors of pirate treasure. Uh, they found uh, a, an area in the middle of the island where there was an oak tree and there were rope burns on this branch and the whole clearing had been made. And below the rope burns was a, a depression that appeared to have sunken into the ground. So they started digging and they hit a platform of oak logs and then they hit a platform of clay. And then they hit a platform of some fiber that was later shown to be, to be coconut fiber. I mean, there are no coconut trees up there, but it was often used as ballast for pirate ships. And they, and they got down to 30 feet, they gave up, but the boy grew up, he came back with a treasure hunting company, they got down to 90 feet, they found a stone with strange markings on it, and at 10 foot intervals, they found these platforms, and then boom, at 90 feet, after they lifted the stone, the shaft filled with water, it had been booby trapped. And that was the beginning, and ever since, They've sunk shaft after shaft. And the, the, the when I was up there, they had drilled a hole down into the island. They lowered cameras, and they claimed to have seen a human hand floating in a flooded cavern 200 feet below. And they claimed to have seen treasure chests and skeletons chained to the wall and pickaxes and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it just gets weirder and weirder. And... But that company went out of business. They, they couldn't, they, they weren't able to raise the money they needed. And, you know, it just goes on. It's an ongoing. I haven't, when I was searching for it, I saw there was an article and YouTube videos and stuff like that as recent as 2023. I haven't looked into any of it yet. I haven't had time, but I'm looking forward to, you know, so this stuff is just, it, it seems like um, on, very much ongoing current day um, mysteries. So you are, your background is as a journalist. And so you're looking into these things as a journalist. Um, you're showing up at these different sites. And then uh, because you're working for different publications, you're able to talk to the archaeologists and the treasure hunters and things. Is that basically 
what's going on? I mean, how do you get access to be able to kind of be involved and get that inside peek into what's going on? Well, you know, it's interesting. Most people want to talk about what they're doing. They're, most people love to talk about their lives and their interests. And of course, most of the people I'm interviewing are not just interested, they are obsessed. Right. They really want to talk about it. So it's not hard at all to get you know, access. Sometimes they want you to sign an NDA, you know, a non-disclosure agreement. But I explain, look, as a journalist, don't do that. That's against journalistic ethics. If there's something you don't want to tell me, just don't tell me. But whatever you tell me is, is going down and <laughs> record. And so just be warned ahead of time. But it's amazing what people will tell you. And oh my gosh, some of these mysteries that I've been involved with have been really, really fascinating. What do you think? Oh, this is a tough question, but what do you think the odds are that there's something valuable at Oak Island? Well, you know, it's interesting. They have brought up in drilling um, a piece, bits of gold and, and some pieces of parchment and things. Um, so there's something down there, probably. But, you know, I interviewed, you know, treasure hunters are kind of a crazy group. So I went to the, to the Smithsonian Institution and talked to some real historians who had studied this and had thoughts about it. And the one thing that made sense was that this was a shaft built by the Spanish during the time when they were taking tons and tons of gold out of the New World and shipping it to Spain. Now, if their ships got caught in storms and were damaged, they were often driven north along the coast of North America, and they sometimes had to offload their gold because they were too damaged to keep going. And that this might have been a temporary repository for Spanish gold. And on top of that, the Spaniards were the world's experts on mine, building shafts and mining. Mm. So they knew how to do all this stuff. Uh, the, the treasure pit at Oak Island is way too elaborate to have been done by a bunch of dirty pirates. <laughs> I mean, mm. you know, ignorant pirates. They're definitely a mining engineer of the highest order had to have been involved in building this pit and booby trapping it. Okay. And I, I take it from your answer too, that you're not convinced by the the argument that it's just a purely natural phenomenon of some of some sort. Well, you know, that that that's a that has been proposed that it was a sinkhole and that these so-called platforms are really caused by storms washing in tree trunks and so forth. But the one thing that gives me pause, well, there are two things. One are the flood tunnels that really appear to have been, manu to have been made, these mm. booby-trap flood tunnels to the sea, that were using as a filter coconut fiber. Now, this coconut fiber has been confirmed by very respected scientists. This isn't just treasure hunters saying, oh, this looks like coconut fiber. So how the heck did tons and tons, and then the, the coconut fiber taken out of the pit has also been confirmed. So, so how did that get there? I mean, you know, it was obviously put there by people. Um, and so, you know, I do think that there, the preponderance of evidence is with that this is man-made. There's something weird going on there. It sounds like, okay, I'm going to have to keep reading about it. Um, so an another one of the stories, we're only going to be able to, of course, scratch the surface of the book in this conversation. And I haven't gotten to a lot of the stories that I want to, 
But the mystery of the Sandia Cave was one that I really enjoyed reading about, largely because of some of the personalities and things like that involved. And I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, Sandia, but um, can you tell us a little bit about what that controversy is about, the Sandia Cave situation? Well, that's that's true. It is pronounced Sandia. Um, that means watermelon in Spanish. Mm. Um, the uh, this the discovery of the Sandia man culture is what they called it in the old sexist days when everything was Piltdown man, Sandia man, Heidelberg man. Of course, there were women too, but um, was the greatest considered to be the greatest Paleolithic discovery in the history of North America. It showed that human beings arrived in North America 25,000 years ago. And it was made by an archaeologist, very famous archaeologist named Frank Hibben, who was a, a brilliant archaeologist. He got his PhD at Harvard in three years, the fastest that anyone has gotten a PhD in anthropology at that institution. Um, a brilliant man uh, who written a number of best-selling books. And at this point, when I addressed this question, um, he was in his late 80s and sort of the grand old man of American archaeology. And what I was able to show and actually prove beyond um, any doubt was that this cave was a massive fraud on the part of Frank Hibbett. A massive fraud. And I looked into this guy's career and I found that he had committed fraud at virtually every archaeological site he touched. And I, I you know, I, all this is on the record. There are no, uh, you know, mysterious sources. Um, every fact in my piece is verified by four, four independent sources and vetted mm. by attorneys. So this is just an incredible story of a man who was a fabulous he was an, he was a, the definition of a pathological liar and what's fascinating about it you mentioned the personalities is that he had no need to be this right. way he was absolutely brilliant and he's also one of the most charming people i've ever met um a brilliant raconteur a very nice man um i had archaeologists saying to me when you interview him and accuse him of fraud, he's going to talk you out of it. He charms everybody. And yes, I had three interviews with him, and he was—he couldn't have been more charming. I felt really bad, but at the same time, I actually had the smoking gun on him. He committed this fraud. Now, um, he also was a very wealthy man with no children, and I was told that he was a, a, a litigious person. Mm. So, you know, there was a threat of a of a libel suit hanging over me, but he never did sue me for libel. So, you know, I mean, I it, it wouldn't have worked. If we'd gone to court, I would have proved that he had done this and it would have been the definitive proof and he didn't want that. Well, and reading the story, it, like you said, it he almost comes across as likable reading the story while you're also meticulously going through and showing here are these various examples that didn't add up. And I guess I was left with the question of, it was clear that he was fudging things or, or or being really sloppy. And I guess I was left with the question of whether or not he was sort of committing some elaborate uh, intentional 
fraud in his own mind or whether it was just a case of motivated reasoning and he was cherry picking and then sort of defending himself after the fact. And I guess we're psychoanalyzing him, which is hard to do, but what was your impression? Did he, you know, uh, in his heart of hearts know that this was, he was making some of this stuff up and this was a, you know, he was running a con basically on some of these situations. You know, that, that, that is really the most fascinating question about this story. You've really put your finger on it. I, agree with your your second hypothesis. I First of all, these were archaeological sites, and mm. they were very important archaeological sites. He didn't make them up out of whole cloth. But what he did was, he was so convinced in, in his theories that he, he, he just couldn't help himself, and he added you know, he salted the sites, he added points, he reflaked points, he, 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 he took artifacts from other sites, and he also took mammoth bones from other sites, mm. had the radiocarbon dated as if they were from this site. So he, it, it wasn't that he thought he was committing fraud, all he thought he was doing was convincing, he was, was adding more convincing evidence to what he was sure was already there. It's mm. often what some, unfortunately, some homicide detectives do. If they're sure that somebody's guilty, they will add to the evidence to make sure that they're convicted. And of course, we know from, from the right. Innocence Project and others that a lot of people who are convicted um, were innocent. And in this case, he, it was fraud because these sites were not at the age he, he, he was claiming. The radiocarbon dates are wrong. They're fraudulent. And uh, these, and unfortunately, because he dug these sites completely, um, they were destroyed, and you can't really put the put them back together and and reverse yeah. near them to find out what they really were. And that was something that was really interesting about reading your account was hearing from different archaeologists and researchers who were there describing things very differently in their perspective, even though they were both at the site around the same time. Uh, but Frank Hibben would describe it one way. And then another archaeologist would say, eh, that's not what I saw at all. And so you're trying to balance and figure out what's really true here. But I think your point makes a ton of sense. He really thought he was making these earth shattering discoveries. And he was just doing, you know, sure, he knew he was probably faking things here and there, but he felt like it was backing up the case that he knew was true, um, like some grandiose, you know, view of himself and his impact on the field. Yeah, he was, he, he loved the attention. And, you know, while I was interviewing him, I mean, my tape recorder is going, he knows I'm a journalist, mm. told me the most unbelievable story about his secret life with the CIA. <laughs> and he told me the story about smuggling a nuclear device into China to plant it to measure nuclear fallout from the Lopnor Chinese uh, above-ground nuclear test. This was quite some time ago. It was just an incredible story. So I called up Stansfield Turner, who was the director of the CIA at the time, and he said to me, look, look, this, this is a waste of time. You already know, if you're a good journalist, that the CIA can neither confirm nor deny any kind of stories like this. And I said, look, let me just tell you the story. He said, I'm telling you, you can, you can tell me whatever story you've got, 
but I'm going to tell you at the end of it that I can neither confirm nor deny it. I said, please, just give me five minutes. (laughs) And he said, just as I said in the beginning, I can neither confirm nor deny it. Now, I'm going to make a comment that has nothing to do with the story you told me. Isn't it wonderful that the CIA has this policy of neither confirming nor denying because any crazy crackpot can tell any story <laughs> they want about working for the CIA and we can either confirm nor deny it. Now, what I just said had nothing to do with the story you just told me. Wow. So, yeah. So, okay. He had sort of a, a um, reminds me of a Ernest Hemingway or the great Gatsby or some kind, you know, some kind of personality like that. And I guess my my question is, you've talked to so many archaeologists and scholars and researchers and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, on the, the academic, you know, less on the treasure hunting side, but more on the academic scholarly side of things. Is, is he a major outlier? I mean, what has your impression been over the years of the field of archaeology and, and the people you've talked to? Well, that, that's a good question. He is definitely a major outlier. Um, the vast majority of archaeologists are honest scientists who are really striving, and they're not fabulous. And and you know, I don't have any um, beef for them. There is one. I've often thought I'd write an article about this. I don't know if I ever will. But the soft underbelly of archaeology, especially southwestern American archaeology, is this: that fifty percent of all sites excavated by Southwestern archeologists were never analyzed or published. And the reason is because these archeologists just love going out into the field and digging up stuff and finding stuff. And they get back to the lab with tens of thousands of potsherds and all their field notes. And they never wrote up the stuff. They got older and older. They finally died. These notes were scattered. The potsherds were stuffed Mm -hmm. away and lost in terms of their context. And now when you excavate an archeological site, you've destroyed it. And so essentially what American archeology span has done is destroy about 50% of the sites that they've worked on that can never be recovered and will never be published. And that is a tragedy. And what do you attribute that to? I mean, I know you listed some of the reasons, but is that, um, the, is that a problem in a, some type of systemic problem in the field or the, it, yeah, it's definitely a systemic systemic problem in the field, not so much today as it used to be, but it's, it's really like what I said, the archeology, the fun of archeology span is going out in the field and digging and finding this stuff. And you end up with an enormous quantity of material and thousands of pages of notes mm. As, you know, graduate students have worked for you. They have taken notes and photographs. And it all goes back to your institution and gets put in a storage room. And guess what? It's a thinking about going through all that stuff, analyzing those potsherds, writing up all these notes and publishing it. Um, a lot of these archaeologists are not writers. They don't like to write. It's hard for them to write. They just don't do it. And they get older and older, always intending to do it. And they never do it. And then once they die, all that stuff is lost. Um, I mean, you very valuable sites. I mean, for example, I'll give you a site, an example. Um, an archaeologist who is very respected, I won't name her. Um, she's now gone. 
But she, there was a, a gravel operation outside of Albuquerque that found a gigantic, um, a prehistoric Pueblo ruin, of thousands of rooms. And in this ruin, they found all kinds of Spanish artifacts from the Coronado expedition dating back to 1540, 1541. And it, this was clearly the ruin that Coronado attacked and occupied in one of the most important battles in between Europeans and Native Americans in North America ever. And it was going to be destroyed by this gravel operation. So this archaeologist excavated it. She found all kinds of absolutely important stuff, just precious, you know, Coronado's you know, skeletons filled with crossbow bolt heads. Now, Coronado's expedition was the only one with crossbows, okay, of Indians who were murdered. I mean, just unbelievably important site. And she excavated all this stuff. It got stored at the, I'm not sure where, I think at the University of New Mexico. She got older and older. She never published. She finally died. And when I looked into this, it was all lost. All the stuff was lost. Her notes were gone. All the stuff that she'd found, no one knew where it was. Oh, well, we our storage rooms were shut, were renovated and all that stuff was moved. We don't know where it was moved. Blah, blah, blah. That site was destroyed. That is a tragedy. Yeah. And it could be that there are these mundane reasons for, you know, somebody just wasn't in the mood that year to go through some of the stuff or like you said, moving and transporting things and, uh, you know, all these considerations that typically, you know, the average person isn't even aware of really exist within the field of archaeology, how, you know, how they take care of artifacts that aren't on display or anything. They're just back in some kind of storage yeah, the, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't very interesting to look at, but yeah, but I mean, like this this particular archaeologist, she just loved being out in the field with her students every summer. Yeah, teaching. She was a wonderful teacher. She was a wonderful person. Uh, there was nothing, you know, but she just <laughs> want to go into that dusty storage room and sort through potsherds for the rest of her life and sort through uh, Spanish artifacts and and do all and and sort through her notes and just didn't want to do it. It reminds me a little bit of an archaeologist I talked to, um, Eric Klein, who was telling me about how there are these Hittite scrolls and tablets, I guess, from the Bronze Age. And there's been so many that have recovered that they haven't even all been translated. And so there's just kind of, you know, these things from the Bronze Age, which we don't have that much information about that, you know, I guess it's it's possible one of these tablets could contain something really insightful, but it just it hasn't all been translated because there are so many of them. I, I had never heard of anything like that. Uh, I think I sort of have, had assumed that there was plenty of people to do all these things, and you know, uh, and I, I kind of underestimated the the manual labor involved in in going through all these ancient artifacts. Yeah, yeah, there is there is a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of tedium in archaeology mm. uh, that people aren't aware of. Um, really tedious work, you know, and you need to get a bunch of graduate students on it. Yeah, but that's what I was thinking. If you take a great PhD, a graduate student translating all those Hittite, you know, clay tablets, what a, what a fabulous PhD that is. Yeah. Well, the other story that I wanted to touch on um, was the one 
the lost tomb. And this was really interesting because as someone who's never been to Egypt, uh, you know, I've always dreamed of going into these tombs and pyramids and different things. And I think pretty much everyone around the world does. Um, but so this was about the discovery of a tomb complex in Egypt's, Egypt's Valley of the Kings in 1995. Can you tell us a little bit about what that tomb complex is and kind of what, how you were able to, to go in and what, what that was like? Uh, that, that was a wonderful experience. Um, you know, you, you would think that all the tombs in the Valley of the Kings have been found. Right. This particular tomb had actually been discovered in 1820 by an Englishman who crawled through this doorway, ruined doorway, because the tomb had been partly collapsed, and found himself in a little room that didn't look very interesting. And he wrote his name with the smoke of his candle on the roof of this room and left. And he called it KV5. And then when King Tut's tomb was discovered, because this, this tomb was so unimportant, they dumped all the debris from King Tut's tomb, which is right next door to it, on top of this doorway. And it was actually completely forgotten that it was anything was there. So in the mid-90s, this archaeologist, an American named Kent Weeks, who worked for the American University in Cairo, was hired by the Egyptians to do some test pits in that area because they wanted to build a bus turnaround. They didn't want to disturb anything. So he started digging these test pits, and lo and behold, he found this doorway. And then he did some archival research and saw, oh, well, it's, it's this tomb that was found hundreds of years ago, very unimportant, um, unfinished, collapsed, blah, blah, blah. But he crawled in anyway. And when he was in this little tiny room, scary as hell because the roof was caving in, he saw at the far end something that this Englishman had missed. He saw another doorway, blocked. So he went over to it with a dying flashlight. He pulled out a bunch of rubble crawled through the hole, turned on his flashlight, and saw that he was in a corridor that was over 100 feet long that ended in a gorgeous, magnificent statue of Osiris, the god of the underworld. And this corridor was lined with burial chambers, dozens of them. And then there were more corridors branching off. What he had discovered was the largest tomb in the Valley of the Kings. So I immediately flew out there. This, how could you not, right? If you're a journalist, this is a discovery of a lifetime. And I flew out there and I uh, spent a couple of weeks with him excavating this tomb. He had a whole bunch of workmen at that point who were digging it out. The tomb was very dangerous and it caved in in places. There was tons of debris and cave-ins and, and so forth. And at a certain point, and he'd uncovered 99 rooms, 99 burial chambers. And it turned out that this was the tomb of the sons of Ramses the Great, at least 50 of his sons. Now, Ramses lived to be 90 years old. And because he lived so long in those days, his sons, most of his sons, predeceased him. Predeceased him. Wow. And so he had the, as the father, built this gigantic tomb to house his sons. And this was the tomb. So at a, at a certain point, and there were a bunch of rooms that hadn't been entered yet. Many burial chambers, like 75 of them, had not been entered yet. So I turned to Ken Weeks and I said, look, ever since I was a kid, I've wanted to be the first person 
in an Egyptian burial chamber. And now's my opportunity. Can I be the first one in? Will you open one of those doors and let me go in first? He said, absolutely not. That'd be totally improper. Please? He said, oh, well, all right. (laughs) So he brought me to the way back, the back of the tomb with his workmen, and he identified the smallest, meanest-looking door he could. (laughs) He had his workmen clear a space out at the top, just under the lintel. And I said, well, how am I going to get in there? Where's the ladder? And he said, oh, we don't need a ladder. And his workmen literally picked me up and shoved me in headfirst through this hole. And I fell into this room. And then they put a light bulb in after me with a, in a cage. And you know, I fell on the floor. And then I could hear Kent's voice outside saying, what do you see? And I said, oh, my God, everywhere, the gleam of gold. He said, what? What are you talking about? Bullshit. That's bullshit. You're lying. That's, you're, you're pulling my leg. You, you know, because <laughs> the tomb had been robbed in antiquity. And all the rooms, even though they had some beautiful stuff in it, there was no gold. So I came back out. I said, yes, yes, I'm sorry. I was just kidding around. He said, gosh, you gave me the worst moment of my life as an archaeologist, thinking that I had just given away the greatest discovery since King Tut to some schmuck of a journalist. <laughs> well, and that the, the fun thing about the book is that, of course, you can read about some of these tombs on Wikipedia or something like that, but your book gives the reader an actual chance to experience some of these things and to actually kind of be along for the ride investigating some of these mysteries. And that's what this show has been all about. So I would imagine a lot of listeners will be interested in going along for that ride because, like you said, these mysteries sort of still exist. And one of the things that um, struck me when you were talking about the Egyptian uh, tomb was that a lot of it still hasn't been explored or maybe that overall complex hasn't fully been explored. And I just, I couldn't believe that. And I I, I sort of um, just, I'm curious what your impression is of, of the current state of finding things in Egypt and what might still be out there. And have we pretty much found all the major tombs or do you think there's major discoveries like that, that are still waiting? Well, it is interesting. Now they've got, they've, found that there are 120 rooms in the tomb, but it's still, there's so much more. Many of those rooms still haven't been opened up yet. Mm. We were back in the way back of the tomb. Um, Kent took me to the back and he said, look, he said, look at this curious room. What's this room for? And why is the floor so beautifully plastered here when in all these other rooms, the floor is not? I said, I don't know. He said, well, stamp your foot on the floor. So I stamped my foot on the floor and there's this enormous hollow reverberation. I said, is there something below this floor? And Ken said, I think there is. And he said, as you can see, the floor is completely undisturbed. This 3,500 year old floor has never been opened. Now that floor has still not been opened. So yes, there's much, much more to discover in Egypt, much more. And also in the back of King Tut's tomb, they think there might be a huge tomb complex extending beyond that. Um, and there's, they've been doing magnetometer surveys and so forth. But the one thing that's fascinating right now is that the Egyptian uh, government and the, the Egyptian Antiquities Association 
have stopped and turned their attention from these great tombs of the pharaohs to excavating the tombs of the common people and also excavating their houses and how they lived. And so they're just starting to open up all these villages where the people who built the great pyramids lived and they're, they're excavating their tombs. And this is extremely important work. Uh, actually, they're really finding out how the common people in Egypt lived, who they were, uh, were they slaves? It turns out they weren't. Were they, were they overworked, uh, mistreated people? No. In fact, they were well-fed, well-cared for. These were like works, works progress administration mm. for them. This was really good, well-compensated work. They were well-fed. And their tombs are very nice because it shows that they were well, that they were buried in, you know, in, in nice ways, that they were given honor and dignity in death. So it's given us a picture of Egyptian society at the time that is very different from the picture of slaves being under the lash, um, right. building these pyramids. In fact, this was a system of a works system, a works job, basically a job creation system for the pharaoh to pay, to employ thousands of people, pay them well, feed them well, and keep them happy. Wow. Well, I'll remind listeners that today we've been talking with Douglas Preston about his brand new book, The Lost Tomb and Other Real Life Stories of Bones, Burials, and Murder. We've been talking more about some of the ancient stories and historical stories, but there's obviously some modern stuff in there as well and some some murder mysteries and things that you've been involved in vest, investigating. Is there anything else about the book that you want to mention, Douglas? Well, I, I think that if you're interested in mysteries and murder and things like cannibalism mm. and fraud and mass death, um, this is a book you might enjoy. I mean, if you like The Lost City of the Monkey Guide, you, I think you'd love this book too. Um, and the other thing is that those, I've written a lot of thriller novels, and there are four stories in this book that directly inspired some of those of those thriller novels that I've written. So if you're interested in that connection, that might might be of interest. I can't wait to start. I've just been getting into thrillers recently, and I can't wait to um, to start yours as well because it, I take it that all of this historical and investigating that you've been doing over your career is sort of the substance that you're drawing on for these different uh, thrillers that often involve ancient history and supernatural and different things. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit of, about some of that? Yeah. They, well, that's, that's true. For example, the, the Oak Island treasure was the direct inspiration for the novel, the thriller novel I wrote, wrote with Lincoln called Riptide. Mm. And in that we, hypothesize uh, um, an answer to the mystery of the money pit, the, the, the shaft on Oak Island. And uh, it's, I think it's a really fun read. And um, I wrote an article that's in this book about cannibalism in the prehistoric Southwest. It's really quite a shocking and gruesome piece, um, but all accurate, which led to the our novel that I wrote with Lincoln Child called Thunderhead. Um, mm an expedition to the southwest that uncovers a very interesting site and there they find all this evidence of cannibalism and what, what, what was it about why was this starvation cannibalism or something else well it turns out in the american southwest this was not starvation cannibalism this was 
cannibalism as a tool of mass terror. You know, nothing, you want to intimidate your enemies? Well, you go to one of their villages, you kill everybody, including women and children, you eat them, you cook them and eat them, and then you leave their bones out there for everyone to see. And that just shows everyone around what badasses you are. So this was a period in the American Southwest around 12, uh, 1100, 1200, where some group came in, maybe, um, and just started murdering, killing entire villages and eating everybody. Who are these people? Where did they come from? Why were they doing this? Well, that's a mystery that hasn't quite yet been solved. Wow. Well, I guess my last question in that case, do you have any career advice for those of us who love historical mysteries and ancient history and things like that? But, um, you know, uh, it's, it seems like you've sort of had all these experiences that most people only dream of having. Um, what would you tell listeners who are interested in maybe going into a, uh, an Egyptian tomb themselves or uh, investigating their own mystery? Well, you know, I think that becoming an archaeologist is a great way to to get involved in that. Now, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money, um, but you're going to have a very, very interesting life. And what's more important? You know, I didn't become a writer to make money either. Um, and I've been very fortunate to have this interesting life. You know, when I was in college, I originally wanted to be a physicist. You know, I majored in physics, I majored in biology, and was going to be an astrophysicist. And then finally I decided, you know, what I really want to do is write about science. Mm. And so I took a bunch of courses in anthropology, archaeology, geology, chemistry, math, you know, and got a really good scientific background so that I could write about it, not be a, a you know, knew what I so I'd know what I was writing about. And so, you know, science journalism, if you're interested in this stuff, is another great way to go. Again, don't expect to be rich. Um, if, you, if you want to get rich, uh, become a, you know a, an investment banker. But that's boring. You're going to have a very boring life as an investment banker. But if you become a scientist or a science journalist, you're going to have a much more interesting life. Awesome, awesome. Well, where can audience members go to to follow your work? Is there anyone anywhere you want to point them to other other than, of course, bookstores and Amazon and things like that? Well, you could go to our website, PrestonChild.com, um, which I share with my writing partner, who does my novels with me. Um, um, you know, you can go to my Instagram account. I've got an Instagram account. I, uh, that's about it. Um, and okay, my books are available everywhere. So, Awesome. Know. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Douglas, for talking to us today. The book is fascinating. I'm going to get back to the, I think the cannibal story might be the next one that I I check out later today. So um, thanks for talking to us and hopefully we can talk again one day. Well, thank you, Patrick. You really asked some, some really good questions. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Thanks for listening. <laughs>